Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Another busy animal news week, and we're going to start out with some incredible news. The world's first seaside sanctuary for beluga whales is set to open later this year in Iceland. This is according to worldanimalnews.com. So think about how cool this is, an open water sanctuary for whales. It's going to be a 32,000 square meter facility, and apparently it'll be the home for two 12-year-old beluga whales who are being held captive at a facility in China. And these two whales will live the rest of their lives in the ocean. This project is led by the Sea Life Trust in partnership with whale and dolphin conservation. So I'm not going to go into the ethical issues of keeping marine mammals in captivity and why whales and dolphins should live in peace where they belong in the open waters and not be kept in concrete tanks in places like SeaWorld and be forced to perform for audiences. But I will tell you that this sanctuary, first of its kind, opening in Iceland, could set in motion something pretty wonderful for captive cetaceans around the world. What do you think about this, Peter? Love it. Great news. Yep. Lori, there's a lot of interest in the Cuvier's beaked whale. I'll tell you about this uh, very interesting creature, okay? People are talking about it now because an interesting study just came out of Duke. And this whale is very interesting because it has been shown to dive deeper than any other whale and to hold its breath longer than any whale. The researchers are using darts, uh, which are harmless to the whales, and a sensor attached to the dart records the duration and the depth that they go down to. And the whales have been shown to go as far down as 9,200 feet. Is that really amazing? There are other whales that dive very deep, too. The whale that dives almost as far is the uh, sperm whale. Cuvier's beaked whales are difficult to study because when they come up, they're only at the surface for like a couple of minutes, and it doesn't give the sensor much time to upload its data. So that's been a real challenge. So I guess the technology is getting better. These researchers collected records on nearly 6,000 dives. And the big puzzle is how can these whales possibly withstand these depths? What are their adaptations? Many researchers think it has something to do with the high oxygen carrying capacity of their muscles. Also, they tend not to have a lot of blubber. Another ailment they're able to avoid is this condition called high pressure nervous syndrome, which can trigger convulsions. So a lot of interest in these fascinating whales, the deepest divers. And what are they doing down there? Well, they're probably hungry and going after the giant squid. And the evidence of that is they've got lots of little abrasions and scars all over their body. So they're probably uh, battling them down in the depths. Wouldn't that be amazing to get some video of that? Okay, that's Cuvier's beaked whale. Fascinating stuff, Peter. Okay, you probably know about Donald Trump Jr.'s love for big game hunting. Yes. He likes to display Instagram photos of him posing with his kills. And I just get disgusted when I see these kinds of photos, a person standing there looking so proud alongside a beautiful, majestic animal now dead. Anyway, some pro... You know, let me just say, yeah. 
To Trump Sr.'s credit, he has said, I just don't get it about his son's hunting proclivities. I remember. So yeah. that's, well, that's something, okay? You're absolutely right. And he said it's something he wouldn't do. Yeah. All right. Whatever. Well, you would hope that some of that would rub off on his Yeah, son. you would. Yes, you okay. would hope. Maybe he should issue an executive order or something like that. <laughs> that would be good. So some pro-hunting group called Hunter Nation is promoting a contest. And the prize is a hunting trip with the president's son. Oh, how Yay. joyful. The description of the contest reads, for a mere $10 entry fee, hunters can join Donald Trump Jr., the modern-day Teddy Roosevelt, oh, yeah, yeah. In, in Utah for a five-day adventure hunting elk in some of the most majestic land our great country has to offer. And according to Hunter Nation, the trip is planned for this fall. Teddy Roosevelt, wasn't he in office like over 100 years ago? <laughs> no, no. I guess they want to call him a modern-day Roosevelt because he was a hunter as well? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Whatever. There's a lot of people who are hunters 100 years ago. Okay, well, Lori, this story trumps yours. It's one about a uh, tiger. Everyone's talking about this tiger that was found in a home in Houston. I think this is getting a lot of notoriety because the person who discovered this caged tiger in a home said he went there to smoke some weed. And so that's why he went into this home. But it's such a sad story. Okay, well, yes, uh, it is a sad story. Anyway, the dispatcher thought the guy was maybe hallucinating, but uh, regardless, a tiger, uh, a 350-pound one, was found in a cage in a house. The cage was reported to be like a homemade thing, and it was locked with a nylon strap and a screwdriver. So the and it was animal small. Yeah. Evidently, the tiger has never seen grass before because ultimately the tiger was tranquilized and transported to a ranch where it can undergo a two-week quarantine. And the reports are that it was walking very gingerly on the grass as if it was doing it for the first time. So here's just another sad example of big cats kept as pets. It's an ongoing tragedy. You're allowed to own a tiger in Texas if you have a wild game permit. However, you're not allowed to own a tiger in Houston. But as we said before, there are just uh, hundreds, probably thousands of uh, tigers in private hands around the United States. It's really, really a tragedy. So I guess we're going to thank the pot smoking guy after all, right? (laughs) Yeah, I know. It just makes me sad. Okay, Lori. Well, let me offer something a little nicer. Thank you. Yeah, I know. Okay. This is based on a short video, and this comes out of Australia. Evidently, a beagle gave birth, but all of her puppies uh, died right after birth, and she was busy uh, looking for them around the owner's property and came across, uh, coincidentally, an abandoned possum. Possum. Little, oh. Right. So the video shows the possum clinging to the back of the beagle, wagging its tail like crazy. And the beagle is just enjoying sort of being mom to the possum. That's it's very the sweet. cutest little thing. Oh. And uh, they interview the, the family and they just think it's uh, delightful. Um, it looks like they're really well bonded. It's really it's really cool. You should find just, uh, you know, search for beagle and possum, I guess. These interspecies bonds are so cute to watch. Yeah, we have, they? uh, yes, they're really adorable. But this story made me wonder, what's a possum and what's an opossum? Do you know about that? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, I didn't know really. But here's the deal. They are not related. The possum, okay, P-O-S-S-U-M, they are found in Australia, New Guinea, New Zealand, and China. That's their native range. And they are related to kangaroos and other Australian marsupials. That's the possum. Now, the opossum is a North American animal. 
It's also a marsupial, but not really closely related to the uh, possum variety. Now, some confusion can happen because in North America, instead of calling the animal opossum, they've just shortened it to possum. So if you told an Australian that you saw a possum, he might think you are looking at his native possum. But really, you've got your own opossum there. You're just calling it a possum. Right. So can be confusing. Yes, they're entirely different. And Lori Grammarly, that website that I find uh, so obnoxious, they have actually a very nice entry about this. And it's useful if you're going to write about this kind of stuff, I guess. And they show examples in literature of the use of both words and remind readers about the common spelling errors of both possum and opossum. Each one only has one letter P. The most common error is to double that letter. And if you wanted to make plural opossum and possum, what do you do? You just add an S to the end so you can say possums. How about plain possum? Okay, well, Grammarly hits that too. That's an idiom, and that refers to the opossum's uh, way of sort of responding to threats. When confronted, they can sort of faint, and that can last from minutes to hours. And, uh, and the animal is just limp. It can drool. And this is something I did not know. It can emit an odor that smells sort of like decaying animal, make them sort of somewhat undesirable to a predator. So That's pretty cool. Yeah. But we use the phrase playing possum to mean someone's pretending to be asleep or dead or sort of ignorant of what's going on. Why do you find the Grammarly website obnoxious? I think it's a little condescending. Mm. I think they are uh, reminding me that I should have uh, studied harder when I was in high school, and it's a little annoying to me. Boy, you're taking it personally. (laughs) I guess I am. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Don't go away. More with Animals Today right after the break. Today's Animals Today Minute is the mammals of Australia. The Everglades of southern Florida has been extensively and rapidly transformed by non-native invasive plant and animal species. Dozens of invasive plants thrive in the Everglades, being introduced both inadvertently and deliberately, and often as byproducts of the pet trade and horticultural industries. The scores of invasive animal species include mammals, amphibians, reptiles, and birds, with the Burmese python being the most notorious example. Invasive animals are introduced as escaped or released pets, as stowaways and cargo ships, and as home aquarium releases. The current infestation of giant African snails was due to specimens intended for use in religious rituals. In addition to the Burmese python, the Everglades Cooperative Invasive Species Management Area has identified 11 other invasive species the public should be aware of, which it refers to as the Dirty Dozen. On the list are tegu lizards, the Nile monitor, the Cuban tree frog, chameleons, the giant African snail, the bullseye snakehead, that's a fish, the lionfish, and four plants, the Australian pine, the old world climbing fern, the Brazilian pepper tree, and the air potato. In the Everglades, the Burmese python has no natural predators except for crocodiles and humans, and thus is thriving. In the glades, their average size is 8 to 10 feet in length, but examples of 17 feet have been found. They mostly prey upon small mammals, including the endangered key largo wood rat, birds, and reptiles. They have decimated the populations of raccoons, opossums, and bobcats, and have killed off the rabbit and fox populations. As you can see, their harmful effect on the ecosystem has been huge. 
These semi-aquatic constrictors are also good climbers and often inhabit trees. Fortunately, they rarely attack humans. For animal advocates, what to do about this invasive species and others worldwide presents few good options. The Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission encourages individuals and contractors to seek out and kill these snakes. They offer cash rewards, t-shirt prizes, and raffle entries for documented kills. The agency also offers training on some of the methods of their safe removal and humane euthanasia, including live training courses, an internet-based course, and an educational video on capturing pythons safely. But humane relocation is not in the cards for these unfortunate predators. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. Welcome back to Animals Today. The research from the University of Liverpool in the UK reveals overweight dogs are more likely to have shorter lives than those at ideal body weights. And specifically, the lifespan of dogs that were overweight was up to two and a half years shorter when compared to ideal weight dogs. Pet obesity is indeed on the rise, and it's estimated that one in three dogs and cats in the U.S. is overweight. Alex German, professor at the university, states, owners are often unaware that their dog is overweight, and many may not realize the impact that it can have on their health. What they may not know is that if their beloved pet is too heavy, they are more likely to suffer from other problems such as joint disease, breathing issues, and certain types of cancer, as well as having a poorer quality of life. These health and well-being issues can significantly impact how long they live. Here are a few simple things you can do to make sure your dog maintains a healthy weight. First, speak to your local vet about your dog's ideal body weight. Since it can be very difficult for us to really know if our pets are overweight, your vet can identify whether your dog has a weight problem. And hopefully, he or she can advise you on feeding amounts as the amounts do change as your dog ages or if your dog needs to be on a special weight management diet. Next, obviously, exercise is very important in helping maintain your pet's ideal weight or helping your pet lose weight if necessary. Of course, the amount of exercise will depend on the individual dog, like the size or breed or mixed breed type, or I suppose some dogs just need more exercise than other dogs. Daily walks can be a great form of exercise, both for you and your dog. Next, watch the snacking and table scraps. According to a recent Better Cities for Pets survey, more than half of cat and dog owners always or often give their pet food if they beg for it. And nearly a quarter of cat and dog owners sometimes overfeed their pet to keep them happy. That's not good. Low-calorie, healthy snacks we give our dogs are green beans and pieces of apples. Yeah. I can't eat an apple without getting the evil eye anymore around the house. I'm like, oh. And they do enjoy them. And we enjoy watching them and hearing them crunch on them. Yeah. I mean, of course, they would prefer the apple pieces if they were coated with peanut butter. And then eventually you have them eating the peanut butter and not the apple pieces. Oh, speaking of peanut butter, you know, you have to be careful since a lot of nut butters contain xylitol and xylitol is poisonous to your animal. And what we buy is the unsalted variety and the ingredient is just 
peanuts, right? No xylitol, no oils, no preservatives. No salt. No salt. Okay, the final tip to keep your dog's weight under control is to weigh your dog every now and then and just be mindful of the changes because even slight increases in weight can have a big impact on their health. And a little digression here, but one last thing about feeding your dogs I want to mention. If your dog is a fast eater like just too fast. And you got to know it's not healthy for your dog to inhale his breakfast or dinner in less than two minutes, which many of our dogs in the past used to do. Until someone had suggested to us these slow feeder dog bowls, and they're great. And that's all we use now for our dogs. And the purpose of the slow feeder bowl is to modify your dog's eating behavior and forces him to eat slower. And eating slower is healthier for your pet. It prevents choking or gulping the food. It helps to prevent indigestion or bloating. So overall, it improves their digestion of food. And you could just check out online all the varieties and shapes and sizes that are sold. But I just think they're great. Me too. Okay, Lori, now for something completely different from the website Laboratory Equipment. This is, as far as I can tell, uh, designed for uh, people who utilize animals in their research. Mm. Uh, They have a little entry of uh, ways that animal activism is uh, changing and will likely continue to evolve in the upcoming year. A trend they identify that has been happening is a decrease in illegal activities. You don't hear about firebombing or outright human against human violence anymore uh, related to animal activism. I know that you interviewed Ronnie Lee some time ago. Yeah. And he was really an advocate of like whatever it takes. And uh, that was an interesting interview. Uh, You don't really hear much of that anymore. Uh, Ronnie Lee is advocating veganism now and UCLA researchers are not getting their cars bombed. People aren't throwing paint on fur anymore, right? Right. The ag-gag laws, when in place, they have prevented people from trying to obtain that undercover video. So only one person was arrested under AGAC and then no more. But this is interesting as a little uh, digression. I just saw an advertisement looking for someone to do undercover work in Iowa where the AGAG was just ruled unconstitutional. Uh, the ad was put out by Mercy for Animals there. So if you are an adventuresome person and want to go undercover, go for it. Boy, that would be a hard job, wouldn't it? Hard and scary. I'd be terrified. Oh, oh you need to be the right kind of person. To I do would that. just hate to see the oh, cruelty of course. that it well, happens. That goes without it? saying, right. you know. Okay, another uh, trend identified in this uh, piece is an increased emphasis on lobbying. We have definitely seen this. Also, the group that they feature is called White Coast Waste Project. And they are taking the tack that research dollars, our tax dollars, are funding experiments that if we knew about it, we wouldn't want to fund, like experiments on beagles. And they're working on the federal level to get some of this uh, uh, changed. And there are so many experiments we don't even know about. That's right. It's, oh, that's a whole, oh, that's a really good point, Lori. Uh, the first part is just figuring out what's there. Yeah. And if people knew, they really would be outraged. They are outraged when they find out, and that's why this is uh, getting traction. It's really interesting. Another trend, more social media campaigning, particularly using video. That is certainly exploding. Anyone can put out a video, and uh, it just is seen by the whole world, which is incredibly powerful. And finally, an increase in the emphasis of alternatives to animal testing. We talked about organ on a chip. There are many other examples of technology being uh, utilized to help us get away from testing on animals, something, of course, we uh, are very happy to see. Okay, Lori. 
A report from Rover, that's Rover.com, called The Real Power of Dog Love, which explores the powerful, loving relationship Americans have with their dogs. The report came out in honor of Valentine's Day and includes responses from hundreds of dog owners across the country who are dating or in relationships. Here are some of the findings. Nearly half of pet parents have planned a Valentine's Day celebration for their dog, including buying them a new outfit or baking a dessert. One in three pet parents say they plan their entire weekend around spending time with their dog and doing activities their dog can participate in. Most dog owners, 81%, use a baby voice or puppy voice when they talk to their dog. And millennials are the most likely to use a special voice when talking to their dog. That's funny. More than half of pet parents would consider ending a relationship if their partner didn't like dogs or was severely allergic. A quarter of millennial dog people have actually continued a relationship or friendship just because they like the person's dog. That's good. Twenty-four percent of pet parents take more pictures with their dog than friends, family, or their significant other. Also, almost half say they cuddle with their dog more often than their partner. And a couple more findings. The majority of dog people agree that seeing someone as a dog lover would make them more interested in dating them. And one in three pet parents regularly bring their dog on dates. And the reasons people bring their dog on dates include wanting to make sure their dog and potential partner get along, 41%, feeling their dog is a good judge of character, 30%, and because their dog makes them feel comfortable, 29%. Mm. Dog has to approve you before I want to date you. It's <laughs> so funny. Okay, stick around. More with animals today after the break. what a vervet monkey is? Well, there's an organization in South Africa dedicated to their rehabilitation, to education about them, and to providing sanctuary to monkeys who need it. I want to welcome Josie Dutoy, director at Vervet Monkey Foundation. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me on the show, Peter. So what is a vervet monkey and what is the foundation? A vervet monkey um, is a monkey that's found across Africa, and they live in family groups. So they're basically like a grey, medium-sized monkey. They are found all over Africa, and there's different subspecies of the vervet monkey. The Vervet Monkey Foundation was actually found in 1993, and the way it started was, um, in fact, Dave Dutoy found this tiny vervet monkey about the, it just fitted into the size of his, the palm of his hand and one of his farm workers had bought him this monkey as he didn't know what to do with it so um, this basically started the whole foundation from finding this one monkey and they found the monkey and he, he thought what do I do with this monkey because you know he didn't, he didn't really know much about them um, so he took it to nature conservation the authorities thinking that they would be able to help him and to his dismay, actually, the authorities said, you know what, vervet monkeys are vermin. So you must actually just take him behind the house, just put him in a plastic bag, and smack him with a shovel and kill him. Oh, so 
you can imagine Dave's dismay to hear this, being somebody who was an animal lover himself, grew up in the beekeeping business um, and, you know, worked in nature his whole life. So it was the one finding of this little monkey who was actually called Regus that started the whole foundation off. And it was Dave and Arthur Hunt that actually started the foundation after trying to save the life of this one monkey. They had basically court case after court case, you know, trying to get the rabbit monkey protected um, and not be, not be vermin. So they looked into why this monkey was, was classed as vermin, what perceptions people were having of this monkey in Africa, and that, hot, that started this amazing sanctuary, which is now full of 600 monkeys. So they fought to save the life of one, which has now turned into 600. And basically what we're seeing is monkeys arriving at the sanctuary, um, either because farmers will shoot them, they, they can see them as pests, Residents will actually shoot them with pellet guns sometimes if they come into um, their houses. You know, they're kind of seen as this um, animal that's, that's a pest, and we're not really looking into what we can do to prevent perceived problems. Um, when you look at the complex of complexities of the vervet monkeys, they live in family social groups like we do. You know, they feel fear, they feel pain. Um, they look after their young, and they even will take adopted orphans that we put together with them. So we're finding more and more that human-wildlife conflict within South Africa is becoming a huge problem. The monkeys are easily, you know, snared, poisoned. Um, they're even used for things like traditional medicines, such as muti, where their limbs are chopped off. Um, they're bitten by dogs. Mm. And even in some cultures, we're finding more and more, um, when we look into people's perceptions of them, we've actually found that they believe the monkeys are associated with witchcraft and therefore people are stoning them and burning them alive. And it's, it's absolutely horrific stories that you hear. There's not much education done at all in the way of living peacefully with wildlife in South Africa. And that's something that the foundation really wants to strive to educate, you know, school children and the community to actually live peacefully with nature and to look into the reasons as why people see animals here as a pest because it, although the foundation actually got the vervet monkey taken off the vermin list in 2005, in some places they're still considered vermin um, and you can easily get a permit so unfortunately to shoot them if the animals are becoming a bother to you. So we've created this sanctuary now um, and our next stage is going to be what we're going to call the vervet forest. Well, we're going to get to the vervet forest, but tell us a little bit about uh, rescuing and rehabilitating these monkeys. Sure. So to give you an idea, Peter, last year we received 39 baby monkeys. Some of their mums were shot. Um, some of them were hit by cars and so on whilst they were carrying their young. And we basically will put them into um, our rehabilitation system. So when we first, when the baby first arrives, what we need to do is bottle feed them because obviously they don't have the mum's milk. So we learn, we teach them how to feed up a bottle. And then after that, what we'll do is they go through a system where they learn to drink off a feeding station. And then once they're at six weeks old, we're actually able to put them with a monkey foster mum. And amazingly, these vervet monkeys want to take care of these young that aren't even their own. They're absolutely amazing with them, which means we can actually put them with a monkey foster mum from one of our troops. So a troop size is, say, around 40 individuals. Um, we'll bring that mum into a, another area with the baby, who will stay in there for another six weeks before we can let mum and baby out together to join their new family group. And this works really well. So by the time the baby's three months old, it's totally hands-off from us at six weeks old, and we can actually give them a family like they once had 
albeit within electrified fencing, but within indigenous bush at the sanctuary. So this is the orphan stage. We can also do direct releases. So if we have a car accident, for example, um, a juvenile might come into us, you know, have broken bones, and we, we would take it to the vet. And then afterwards, as long as we know where the tooth location is, if we're told what time of day the monkey was found, roughly the, the right location, what we'll do in our team is, is to follow up and find those monkeys in the wild, and then we'll be able to directly release that monkey back providing we know where their group is. Um, unfortunately, we can't just release individual monkeys unless we know where their troop is. It's too dangerous. They, they do need their troop to survive. Tell us about the Vervet Forest movie and the video series. Yeah, the Vervet Forest is actually really amazing how it came to be. Um, we have a volunteering program here where people can come over to South Africa and volunteer with, to help the monkeys. And in 2007, a volunteer called Carl Fraylazar was here. And it was a few years ago that he actually wrote a proposal to us to say that he's a film director from Los Angeles. He would like to create this incredible film called The Verbit Forest. And he started to put this film together. He came out, he did exactly what he said he was going to do. And he created the Velvet Forest movie, which is all about the story of five orphaned monkeys. Um, it also goes to talk about habitat destruction with outside speakers in. Um, and it, it incorporates a whole lot of South African culture, but also the lives of these orphans, where they came from, where they are now. Um, which is a really touching movie. He then went on to create the Vervet Forest YouTube series, which is a series of small video clips of each orphan that comes into the sanctuary each season to show you know, their individual personalities, their characters, how they're playing, how they're actually then bonding with this mum that's not even there. So he, he created that along with the Vervet Forest movie, which we're trying to get out internationally, into film festivals, and we're also looking for people to actually screen that movie with, you know, looking at different venues and places that we can actually show the movie to spread awareness about what's happening to these vervet monkeys within Africa. Because once you understand the monkey, um, you can peacefully live with them. And it's amazing how, you know, some people see them as this incredible species to watch, highly intelligent, and yet, you know, another one will see them as a pest. And that's what he's done is to create this, this movie around it so that we can spread awareness for the primates there as well. Uh, you mentioned the volunteer program, and indeed, it's a very well-developed uh, program, and it really attracts an international crowd. Tell us a little bit of, about that. Sure. In fact, Peter, I actually started off as a volunteer myself. It's amazing. Um, I'm from England, and it's amazing, you know, by volunteering at one sanctuary, how far it gets you in terms of, you know, your passion and meaning in life and you can actually choose to volunteer, come out to South Africa for as little as two weeks, although we do encourage four week stays. And you can really get involved with the day to day running of the sanctuary. So you might be preparing food for the monkeys, you might be, you know, changing water bowls, um, collecting vegetation, looking after baby monkeys. So when the babies first arrive we do need to bottle feed them as I say. Um, we do need to, you know, literally hug them and care for them like their mum would do so in preparation for them going out into their new group. Long term phase, for example, you know, people who decide for three to six months or even internships we have for say a year long, um, they might be involved with the whole 
social integration system and learning about the behaviour of the bear bit monkeys, how they live within, you know, different groups within the hierarchy um, and, you know, really doing the observations and releasing those animals for the first time into the group. So there's a lot of variety. We can use lots of different skills, you know, whether it's people in, even in graphic design or fundraising, animal care, you know, behaviour. There's so many skills, construction that we could we could actually use here. People stay within kind of basic bush living. So they stay within wooden cabins um, in what we call the volunteer village. You know, they get up every morning. It might say start at 7 o'clock and finish around half past four in the afternoon. They're working together with other international people. Um, at the moment, we've got around 30 volunteers, which um, we're actually full, which is fantastic. And every single person plays a part to help these monkeys. And it's incredible what's actually being done. We even had a vegan chef volunteer who was here who actually taught school chefs. So local school chefs, he taught them um, how to cook plant-based meals. So we're, we're really reaching out into the community. So it goes far beyond just the sanctuary. Um, we're trying to do the education, the community outreach, and, of course, creating the Vervet Forest as well. We've been speaking with Josie Dutoy with Vervet Monkey Foundation. Uh, tell us the website where people can learn more and, uh, and see all the uh, videos and Instagram photos. Sure. We've got um, the one website is www.vervit.za.org and the other website for the Vervit Forest is www.thevervitforest.com. And the Vervit Forest is going to be an alive and thriving ecosystem for rehabilitated primates and wildlife to live free from harm for generations to come. And that's what we're trying to create. We really want to invite partners to help us into creating the dream for the monkeys, but also for sustainable living and ethical living coming from kindness and compassion. So do read about the website. I really hope that the listeners um, will have a look at the trailer and the documentary on the Velvet Forest website. Well, thank you very much for joining us on Animals Today. Thank you very much for having Peter. More with Animals Today after the break. There is no getting around it. The great outdoors isn't so great for your cat. From speeding cars to toxic lawn chemicals, coyotes to cruel humans, cats are no match to the dangers of today's world. The good news is animal behavior experts say cats don't need to go outside to be happy. Your family will be happier and healthier, too, without the ticks, fleas, diseases, and the dead critters the outdoor cats bring their owners. And you will never have to explain to a crying child who or what hurt her pet or why he hasn't come home. Cats can enjoy a happy and safe life indoors. The key is to provide attention, exercise, and a stimulating environment. Play with your cat. It's fun for both of you. You can hide toys around the house, too. Just make sure there can be no detachable parts that can be swallowed. You can protect your cat from becoming a tragic statistic. Tomorrow may be too late. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. February 15th, National Hippopotamus Day. Really? So let's learn some fascinating facts about hippos. Hippos are mostly herbivores, semi-aquatic mammals, usually inhabiting shallow rivers, lakes, and swamps and are native to sub-Saharan Africa. Peter, the name hippopotamus comes from the ancient Greek 
what? Ancient A, Greek. Ancient Greek. Yep. Wow. A, river horse. B, swamp cow. Or C, water elephant. I'm going to say uh, river horse. Yes. But hippos are not related to horses at all. In fact, their closest living relatives seem to be whales. True or false, hippos are considered the second largest land animal on earth. I'm going to say that's true. True. And the largest is? The elephant. Very good. I'm going to give you credit for that question since hippos are listed by many to be the second largest land animal. According to Animal Planet, they are the third largest after elephants and white rhinos. Mm. True or false, hippos can outrun a human. I have a feeling that's true. Easily. Oh, boy. You know that they have short legs and sort of a stocky built, and you might think they shouldn't be able to run that fast. But over short distances, hippos can run at speeds of 18 to 31 miles per hour. That must be a sight. And this is not an animal you're going to want to hug. Although, have you seen the baby hippos? You you sort of want to hug a baby hippo. Yeah, very cute. Anyway, hippos can be very aggressive animals, often regarded as one of the most dangerous animals in Africa. Hippos lack scent and sweat glands, so to stay cool, hippos spend most of their days in rivers and lakes. Their eyes, nose, and ears are located on the top of their head so they can see and breathe while still being submerged in the water. When completely submerged, their ears and nostrils fold shut to keep water out. True or false, hippos need to resurface every four to five minutes to breathe. Okay, uh, true. It is true. This is an automatic process, and even sleeping hippos surface to breathe without waking. So it's automatic. In African rivers, hippos look like floating islands with birds fishing from their backs. Turtles and even baby crocodiles have been seen sunning themselves on hippos. There's this myth that hippos sweat blood. Have you heard about that? Nope. You want to guess where that came from? Oh, that came from the ancient Greeks? No, I meant, do you know what gave rise to this myth? Oh, I don't know. Okay, they secrete this liquid, and it's an oily red substance, and it makes them look like they're sweating blood. But it's actually a skin moisturizer and a sunblock, and also might serve to protect them from germs. Yeah. Female hippos are called what? Mares, cows... Or hippas. Uh, how about cows? Cows are correct. The females give birth every two years, usually to a single calf. Male hippo is called what? Man uh, hippo? <laughs> stallion? No, no. Or bull? A bull. Bull is correct. Okay. Hippos typically live in groups, and the dominant males are very protective over the group. You've seen how huge a hippo can open their mouths, right? Well, they are displaying their long, curved, sharp teeth, and they often open their mouths to warn off rival males. They also make loud grunts and aggressive splashes in the water. In fact, hippos are one of the noisiest animals in Africa. True or false, hippos are carnivores. Wait, I was listening. Uh, They are uh, predominantly herbivores. Yes, this was a test question to see if you were listening, because I had already mentioned the herbivores, so this question was to make sure you were paying attention. They are most active at night where they forage for food like grass. In the wild, hippos live for up to how many years? Okay, and my choices are, I'll just say, how about 40 years? 40 is correct. Yeah. Now, their predators include crocodiles, lions, and hyenas, and sadly... And of course, like so many of our magnificent non-human animal species, populations have declined and they are endangered mainly due to hunting for their meat or ivory in their teeth. And another major threat is habitat loss. Yes, we've heard that tune before. 
this is Dr. Lori Kirshner from Animals Today. Here's a question for you. What do game show host Bob Barker, actress Tippi Hedren, journalist and author Jane Velez Mitchell, and rock legend Paul Rogers all have in common? That's right. Each one has been a guest on Animals Today. In fact, people from all walks of life, like scientists, lawyers, dog and cat rescuers, and whale protectors, have shared their views and described their work on behalf of animals on the show. So keep up on the latest and most important animal news and issues from around the world each week right here. Make sure to join the discussion on Facebook and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And of course, I welcome your ideas and suggestions. So feel free to contact me at Dr. Lori, that's D-R-L-O-R-I, at animalstodayradio.com. See you next time. Being a dog, a cat, or a rabbit foster parent can bring great rewards, and shelters are very eager to work with fosters to help relieve pressure in their facilities and to facilitate successful adoptions. However, there are certain things you may want to learn before you dive in. With me now is Seth Hudson with Animal Behavior College to describe their pet fostering program. Welcome, Seth. Glad to be here. What is Animal Behavior College? Animal Behavior College is a trade school that has distance learning and one on-site program. Our primary distance learning is the veterinary assistant program, a groomer program, a dog trainer uh, program, and then our on-site is a dog trainer program as well. So why did you see a need to offer something in the area of fostering? We've noticed a trend with uh, private rescues, shelters, uh, and one of the things is is they're doing more work with behavioral and training work. And so one of the ways we want to do is we want to help create uh, continuing education programs to help uh, trainers or employees or volunteers at these rescues to help further their causes. Okay. We have several other programs uh somewhat for uh, training and doing behavioral work. We have a cat training program. We have a short-term education program about uh, working with shelter dogs. Okay, and so if I'm just an individual person and I want to become a foster, is this appropriate for me, or are you aiming more at organizations? Uh, It can be for both. The primary uh, goal behind the fostering program is one is to teach people how to work with rescues and shelters, uh, and it goes into further things such as uh, how to recruit, find, train, and retain volunteers mm-hmm. um, in regarding to fostering. Also, it talks about socializations, you know, safety and first aid, depending on what type of animal you're fostering. What pitfalls do you see commonly or problem areas of, of people or organizations who are just dipping their toe in this area? Well, uh, for me, I've been working in rescues now for uh, well over six years, and the biggest challenge I've seen with fosters is really is what we call compassion burnout or uh, volunteers burning out on their fostering. Okay, so this is a remote learning program. How does it work? Well, you would uh, contact us here at Animal Behavior College, and you would get enrolled in our program. We would then send you the materials you would need for, depending on what program you you uh, enroll in, this one being the fostering, you would get the book regarding the foster program. You would ha- then have a certain amount of time to complete your foster the, uh, lesson and then take your online final exam. Hmm. How can listeners learn more about these programs in Animal Behavior College? To do that, uh, just simply give us a call here. I have our number. It's one eight zero zero or one eight hundred seven nine five 
888-526-3294, or you can visit us at animalbehaviorcollege.com. Seth Hudson with Animal Behavior College. Thank you very much. Glad to be here and enjoyed our talk. Thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals.